Hello, my name is Cliff Smith. I'm the Washington Project Director of the Middle East Forum. Welcome to our webinar and podcast series. Uh, today, we have a very special guest in Nadine Menzia. She is the former chairwoman of the United States Commission on, Ind on International Religious Freedom, or USERF. To quote from your SURF's website, it is an independent, bipartisan US federal government commission created by the 1998 International Religious Freedom Act um, that monitors universal right to freedom of religion or belief abroad. USERF uses international standards to monitor religious freedom violations globally and make policy recommendations to the president, secretary of state, and Congress. As such, it is an extremely important body in shaping the debate around religious liberty abroad. After leaving the chairmanship of USERF, Nadine joined the International Religious Freedom Secretariat, a private organization of which she is now president. Welcome, Nadine. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. <clears throat> mandate um, is religious liberty worldwide, and this has jurisdiction well beyond the Middle East. But a number of countries in the Middle East um, are a particular concern to USERF, including Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Egypt, Turkey, Algeria, Azerbaijan, as well as other countries in the periphery of the Middle East, such as Afghanistan, Pakistan, several of Central Asian countries, as well as different entities in Yemen, Iraq, and Syria. Mm -hmm. These are just most problematic. Mm -hmm. um, Nadine has traveled to a number of these countries personally and has spoken to people on the ground in some cases several times. So just before um, Nadine left office, USERF released their 2022 year annual report. So let me start off by asking sort of an question, given this background. Um, tell me a little bit more about how USERF works and what its role in the Middle East has consisted of during your time. Sure, so um, the US Commission, as you said, is an independent bipartisan agency. So what makes us really unique is that we assess religious freedom conditions independent of the State Department. And so we, we put blinders on. We're only looking at religious freedom. We don't consider the bilateral relationship with another country. So when we call out, um, you know, a country for its abuses on religious freedom. We don't consider if they're an ally or not of the United States. So we're able to be a little bit more clear-eyed in in our um, our recommendations. And I think that that's what gives us such a unique point of view. Um, and because of that, it's it's it has a, a certain level of credibility um, really around the world, but particularly in the United States with Congress. Um, they they use our reports a lot to make. Um, a lot of help them make some of the decisions when it comes to policy making. You know, there's a nine commissioners, so we're bipartisan, chosen by the president, the Republican and Democratic leaders of the House and the Senate. So you really do have this like remarkable bipartisan um, way of working together. I don't know if there's any place quite like it um, in the United States where we have people that are so far um, on on political issues on the other side. Like last. Um, commission, for instance, we had a George Soros fellow and we had someone from the Family Research Council and they were among the best friends. And, and, and on these issues, you know, there really was no daylight um, between the left and the right when it comes to domestic issues, because we can all agree um, that people shouldn't be persecuted because of their um, religious identity or the fact that they have none. And so it, it does bring a, a, a really wonderful environment where we could all work together and, and try to figure out how, how we can make recommendations to the US government that will in turn lead to increased um, religious freedom conditions around the world. Sure. And how is your role in the Middle East? What are, what are the issues that have particularly concerned the commission on the Middle East during your term? Well, sure. So I was um, on the commission for four years. So it was two terms, which is the most that you can serve. Um, and the, the, we, we do see a lot of um, difficult conditions for religious freedom in the Middle East. So it's always been a unique place 
because um, of, of the, um, the different struggles that we've had. And of course, with ISIS um, committing genocide and, and causing um, horrible crimes in addition to displacement, was something that you know we hadn't seen um, for for such a long time, and it, it it definitely was a focus of the commission. And as we know, you know the 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 communities that were impacted by ISIS as genocide still haven't recovered. So that's an, another been a real focus. I think um, Newsurf has been one of the best voices on you know Yazidis, um, Syriac Syrian Christians, and others who who still haven't recovered from the genocide, making sure they're not forgotten, talking about the conditions in places like Sinjar and the Nineveh Plains and Syria, um, that it's easy to to look aside at some of the, the bigger geopolitical um, issues going on and forget um, that we still have a responsibility in the U.S. government um, should still have policies to support these communities. Yeah. Um, on that topic, adjacent to it anyway, um, I've, you know, speaking to you personally, I know that you spent months um, in northeastern Syria under the control mm -hmm. of the Syrian Democratic Council. Uh, that is a group that consists mostly but not exclusively of Syria's Kurdish mi um, minority. Um, can you describe this region's importance and what it means for religious liberty in the Middle East? Sure. So it, it, it's such an interesting place. And I'd, I'd first heard about Northeast Syria because Yusuf had been covering it for years before I joined the commission and in, in calling out um, the positive religious freedom conditions there. But we didn't even know the name of the government. I think we called it a Kurdish-led government. And of course, that's not true. It's actually a majority Arab now, and, and it, as is the SDF. So it's it's a misleading term that that people frame it that way. So I was able to go at kind of the last minute um, in, in November 2019, while Turkey was invading um, um, the, for the third time, and and it was it was stunning to just see the conditions, meet with people, um, and understand what was at stake and what they've done. And I think. Well, most, while most people are, are familiar with the Syrian Democratic Forces defeating ISIS, most still don't know that while they were defeating ISIS, they were also setting up this self-governance. When I say they were setting up, they were empowering the people to set up self-governance that has created the best religious freedom conditions in the Middle East and, 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 and is working just as well in, in the Arab areas. And I probably have spent at least equal amount of time in those areas, if not more, because that is where there's been so much misinformation that the Kurdish areas are great and then they're like you know, making the Arabs, you don't make people in Raqqa run a government. Um, they have, they're running their own government. In fact, I was with a group of women from Raqqa in May and I said about when AES, the autonomous administration came and, and, and started self-governance and they're like, came, no one came. Like we set up the government, we're the people of Raqqa, we, it's our government, you know, and it just reframes to remind you that the, that the narrative out there that, you know, that this is a Kurdish run in the sense that the Kurds are calling all the shots is, is, not at all the case in the sense that this is a local people um, from all ethnicities and religions that have been in, interwoven the way that they have set up the government, every la layer of government, you have every ethnicity and religion represented. I've never seen a tapestry quite like this in a government. And so it, what has happened is it's reframed the way people look at one another. And that is why you have these kind of conditions. And, um, and it's also the reason why they have so many um, enemies because this kind of freedom is not welcome in the Middle East. Yeah, um, that leads me to my next question quite nicely, actually. Um, you know, given this is this small, um, relatively small region of Syria, um, what about the rest of Syria? I know in Yusuf's last report, uh, they noted that the government had done outreach to Jastra Syrian Jews, but mm -hmm. that had done much to enforce Bashar al-Assad's Alawi sect over um, others. Um, mm -hmm. And how do you view, can you contrast the two and, and do you think sure. situations in the rest of Syria are likely to improve or get worse on the current trajectory? Right. So um, the areas that, that Assad runs, 
you know, the, he, he likes to take pride in protecting the religious minorities, but really they're pawns. You know, they, they have religious freedom as long as they support him um, and follow um, um, and, and do what, what they're asked to do um, by, by Assad. And is, there's no blame to them on that. So I'm not trying to cast them in a negative light. It's very difficult being a minority in these countries. And, and a lot of them are just wanting to protect their families, but, but it's not religious freedom. And, you know, what we've also seen is, um, you know, he, uh, President Assad has, is, um, you know, dismissed um, the Sunni leader and put in his own and is, has really co-opted that religion. Um, in addition, has made it so that um, Yazidis have to follow Sharia law um, and now has put them underneath uh, um, Islamic um, law. And so there, there's all sorts of things that Assad has done to prove that religious freedom um, is is not it's not true religious freedom, and so that is why Yusuf um, has continued to to call the regime out and to document um, the different ways that they are violating religious freedom. Yeah. Um, going from there, uh, we can discuss Turkey a little bit down the road, but okay. Turkey is on the special watch list, but it also plays an outsized role in Syria, particularly Northeast Syria right. and um, the Syrian Democratic Council. Can you explain a little bit about the interaction between those two? Right, so Turkey, you know, is invaded now three times and and is, is, is now governing, you know, freeing Serkani, Talabiyad in these places where Turkey is. Um, Excuse me, explain who those people are freed. I don't think are. You know who the Syrian Democratic Council? You mean? Yes. Okay, so so the way the Syrian Democratic Forces, of course, is is the the military arm, and so the U.S. government did not want to interact with the actual government, and they didn't until um, not that long ago. To be honest, this administration they ignored the government, and in some respect, it helped the government to be able to set it to to actually create a government that represented the people. So the autonomous administration in North and East Syria is the government of Northeast Syria. And they are, are set up in um, seven different regions and they have different layers of government. It's really based on a commune with like 100, 120 families. And the several of those put together to make a sub-district and then a district. And it goes up to um, the region and then to the autonomous administration. And they have elections um, and um, they have co-chairmen, a man and a woman for every position. And so the Syrian Democratic Council is the political arm of the Syrian Democratic Forces. So they were really created in a lot of ways to be the, the go-between with the U.S. government and others to represent the political part of Northeast Syria. And they really are looking more um, for the whole country and they'd like to, to see a federalized Syria in the future. And so you really have the this SDF, the SDC, and then the Autonomous Administration, AES is the is the acronym for them. And so really, you know, they're they're all kind of working together. They're the same, but just um, have different duties. Mm -hmm. And how does Turkey interact with this? I know you said they've invaded multiple times. What is their right. goal in doing so? Well, well, they're you know their their um, their goal really is to destroy the entire government, and and that has been clear from day one. And of course, you know, th there's no doubt that that so many of the leaders came from the PKK, and the PKK had a strong um, influence in in setting up the way that they set up the government, but. But it is uh, a mistake to say that this is the, the Northeast Syria is made of PKK members and their goal are, are the same as the PKK. They are not. It's not run by the PKK. So this is really um, an excuse, just like you know Erdogan says, you know Sinjar is run by the PKK and the in 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 bombs Yazidis there. I mean it's it's an excuse for him to con continue um, to uh, clear out areas that he would like to control. And so um, it's, it's really important that, that, that people talk about this so people could understand 
that what what he's doing means. And right now what we're seeing is Turkey. And when I was there in May, um, had threatened Erdogan to invade again. I know the U.S. and Russia both pushed him back on another invasion. So instead, um, I think he's done 75 drone strikes this year um, and is really targeting civilians. It's a way of um, of of impacting you know the morale of the entire um, region. I think that um, Save the Children just announced that in this month alone that they documented 30, 13 children were killed and 27 injured just yesterday, a drone attack in a marketplace, killed um, three civilians, injured seven, including two children. Of course, a lot of us heard about August 18th where Turkey targeted a UN education center, um, killing four teenage girls while they were playing um, volleyball and 11 were injured. So we're seeing this almost daily targeting of civilians and, you know, Targeting civilians is a war crime when Russia does it in Ukraine, is a war crime when Syria does it. I mean, Turkey does it in Syria. And I think it's important for the international community to be really clear that, the, that these are illegal actions um, and that the, 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 the international community just can't look away. Mm -hmm. um, uh, pivoting to Turkey proper, um, it's attracted attention in recent years as it was formerly, um, you know, a perhaps a model for a secular Mm -hmm. uh, Muslim country, uh, Muslim majority country. Um, however, in recent years under President Erdogan, it's taken a much, much more Islamist theocratic turn. Uh, most publicly was by turning Hagia Sophia, an ancient church that had been preserved in a museum into a mosque. Um, Yusuf's recent report says conditions have reigned poor and there's been no improvements. Um, what do you think the future of religious liberty is in Turkey under current leadership? Yeah, it's, it's been very disappointing because there was so much hope that things would go a different way and it's pretty consistently poor. And, um, you know, what we're seeing is Erdogan, um, you know, he's, he's interfered in um, elections for board members of, of multiple um, uh, Christian denominations in particular. Um, that that is illegal. He was saying um, earlier this year that um, soon they would be having elections. He'd allow elections for these board members. So really interfering with with local um, religious communities. Um, they arrested the police arrested nine imams for preaching Kurdish last year. Um, and those are just ridiculous um, inter interventions, obviously um, illegal ones that the government is doing based on ethnicity or, or religion. And um, and also, you know, we're seeing all sorts of religious minorities and anti-Semitism, religious minorities targeted anti-Semitism, um, language being used by government officials. And so, you know, we, you surf, I should say, and I, of course, authored this report. So I say we, because, you know, we put so much time into it. And obviously, um, we have new commissioners now that are on board that are terrific, that are really making the case for this. I'm glad to stand with them. But, you know, it's the, the U.S. government really does need to be tracking these, and, and we hope is interacting directly with Turkey um, about th these concerns that USERP has. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to countries of particular concern and countries in the watch list, you have entities that are on um, of particular concern. One that I noticed that the last report of USERP mentioned was um, the Houthi movement in Yemen. Uh, the Houthi yes. movement is a radical Shia movement supported by Iran. Um, it is, uh, can you elaborate on the concern there? And also, I wondered if you have the thoughts on the Trump administration's, um, frankly, kind of last second terror designation of the Houthis, as well as the Biden administration's then undesignation of them and kind of what role that all played in, in fostering or hurting religious liberty. Right. So, I mean, I, I think it's important to use all the tools the government has to target like the Houthis, you know, for 
um, you know, meeting the threshold um, where they should be an entity of particular concern. Um, because they have, you know, one of the, the thresholds you have to have to have that designation is you have to have a certain amount of land. And so they have done that. So they're almost like a government. And so they need to be treated like a government in a sense, not with the legitimacy of a government, but, be, but have the same force from the U.S. coming towards them when they're committing these atrocities against civilians and people. And of course, you know, the EPCs that are, are ones that are, are violating religious freedom in a severe way, just like a country would have. So they're, you know, they're they're definitely going after, um, so obviously any Jewish community that they're able to still find, but any religious minorities. I think in terms of, of designating them ter terrorists, I, I, my understanding was that they didn't do that because it interfered with, with um, humanitarian um, um, delivery of humanitarian supplies to the country. So it's hard for me to make a call on if that was the right one to do or not, um, because I really don't understand what that would have meant in terms of, um, of the people on the ground. And I certainly, with all the work I do in Syria, I've seen how hard it is to get humanitarian um, supplies into the people who are suffering. There's enough money, there's enough people that want to get it into the, you know, the country and it's hard to do. So I, 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 I feel I, I I would like to think that that we consider those things when we're making these decisions. And so uh, I'm not quite sure what the right call one was for that, but I do think the U.S. government has a lot of levers that they could push for these EPCs in order to make their lives difficult, whether it be financing, whether it be transportation, sanctions, all the different things they could do to to de-incentivize the kind of behavior that we're seeing. Okay. Um... We have a few more minutes, so I'll ask a couple more questions and we'll go to audience questions. We already have questions in the hopper, but if you have any okay. others, please go ahead and uh, put them in the Q&A box. Um, one of the more interesting countries to me in the US first last report was Egypt. Uh, Egypt has the largest Christian population in the Arab world, roughly 10% of their population. Yes. Uh, yet their Christian population remains vulnerable. Uh, you praise the Egyptian government for making some strides in recent years, yet listed the number of concerns including mm -hmm. A slowing of the pace of legalizing churches, the detentions of some prisoners of conscience, and continued use of so-called reconciliation councils when mm -hmm. there's violence between communities, which functionally harms Christians when these kinds of things happen. Right. Uh, can you discuss the challenges facing Egyptian Christians and other religious minorities in Egypt? Yeah, I think I think the Christians, you know, and as you said, it's such a huge amount in context, you know, it's like 10 million Christians in, in Egypt versus a couple hundred thousand in, in Iraq. So, I mean, it's a huge amount of Christian community and, and they are they are marginalized and they don't have the same um, um, potential to whether it be business or in government that 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 the Muslim majority has. And so obviously it's very clear um, that there needs to be a lot of revision in order to be able to change things. And as you mentioned, the reconciliation sessions, which is something we've been really concerned about um, because it, 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 it usually harms um, the, the Christian community as much as it, it harms the perpetrator of crimes against them. And I know that some people thought it was a way to de-escalate, but when, when someone is charged with a crime, and especially in Upper Egypt, instead of putting them through the judicial, like say if there's a crime against a church or a crime against a Christian, um, an attack, um, they'll bring together the whole community and then both sides will have to give concessions. So what, what will often happen is the person who was attacked or the church will be closed or the person will have to leave the community. And so it, it's almost like they're punished, they were the victim and then they're punished again through these sessions. And we've actually seen um, in the last year uh, and or two that the judicial system is used more. And so that has been encouraging. And, and I appreciate that, you know, USERF is the first to call out positive changes 
even if they're not huge. Um, and and I, we hope that's an incentive for governments to want to have more positive changes so that they could be, you know, portrayed more favorably. And so there were, you can't deny that, you know, the president has, has, has definitely said things to, to encourage acceptance of Christians. And that is important for these communities. He said, like, everyone has a right to believe or not to believe. Everyone should have a, a house of worship. Um, but yet you still see a lot of the, the same um, laws that they, they had five years ago with, with no changes. And, and so we'd love to see some more um, laws change. The, the blasphemy law is, it should not be used. It, you know, it's certainly, um, and it, 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 it could be changed so that the, 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 the penalties are less. Um, we think that um, the curriculum, we know there's been some positive change in the curriculum. So we really wanted to make sure to call that out. Um, and, and so to me, Egypt is one of those countries that um, the U.S. gives so much support to. And, and we hope it's hard to know what's happening behind, you know, in di diplomatic circles. But we hope that the U.S. is, is tying some of these human rights, religious freedom um, requests <laughs> or bars um, with funding to incentivize the government to make some of these changes. Mm -hmm. um, Got to get talking pretty quick here, but last question, perhaps quickly. Okay. Um, Saudi Arabia has been particularly controversial, to put it mildly, in recent years. There's no doubt that it has killed dissidents and is jailing critics. Um, yet they have also, in some small ways, given women greater rights. Uh, according to most experts, they've massively cut back on funding of Islamist groups and jihadist groups. Uh, I, you, the USERF report discusses small incremental improvements in terms of religious liberty, but still playing a bleak picture. How do you think the U.S. can encourage sort of the good um, changes in Saudi Arabia while still condemning the, you know, the rampant problems? Yeah, Saudi Arabia is is tough because you know the we the improvements we see while they're you know because they're women under Islamic law their religious freedom because they're changing the bar for how women are treated under those laws but you're really not seeing any changes in the way people that are um, not following state sanctioned Islam are able to practice their faith so it is a, a really difficult place unless you're a foreigner but if you and, you know they love to welcome Christians and others to their country from other countries. But if you're um, a, a Saudi citizen, you cannot be um, any religion other than state-sanctioned Islam. And, and of course, the Shias we know are discriminated against and, and not treated the same as the Sunni population. And you can just tell by the prison population. So again, Saudi Arabia is one of those countries that gets a lot of funding from the U.S. They're important partners. And the U.S. should be tying a lot of um, the recommendations we have for how people are treated to some of that funding if they want to continue to ha have that relationship with us. Mm -hmm. Last question, then we got to run to uh, audience questions. Can you tell me about how your new work affects these issues and how your experience at USERF's chair will inform your new work at the IRF Secretariat? Yeah, so um, the Earth Secretariat is is such a um, exciting place to be. We we run the International Religious Freedom Roundtable every week. Um, it used to be in person, where the Ambassador for Religious Freedom would attend on Capitol Hill, and now it's online. But we are going to do a hybrid in, in, next year, where we'll start having them in person again. We do have uh, Ambassador Rashad Hussein and others from the State Department, USAID, USERF attend regularly, as well as religious leaders, civil society leaders, and government all over the world. And, and I think one of the most important things we do is actually the Earth Roundtables around the world. And we see places like Kazakhstan, you know, um, Uzbekistan and, and um, um, Sri Lanka, there was just one this week. I was on one in Lebanon a couple of weeks ago. And so we're, we're you know, civil society, government, um, religious communities come together 
and um, have joint actions they do together, share information. Each one is a little different, their goals are different, but the whole idea of, of, of having um, communities come together and work together you know, is, is really the best way to improve conditions. It has to be from the ground up. It can't just be from the top down. And so for me, this is um, really just a continuation of what I did at USURF. I'm going, the week I left USURF, I went to Uzbekistan, Iraq, and Syria. So clearly going to the same place that I, I had been earlier in the year and continuing the same sort of work I was doing. So for me, the one thing I did learn about being at USURF is the, the importance of government of course, and you know, I spent a lot of time with government leaders, whether it be ambassadors from other countries, our countries, the State Department, and wonderful people with a lot of power, but, but civil society really matters. And when you're seeing these improvements on the ground in the countries that have seen, there are very few countries have had improvements in the last couple of years, but you see a strong civil society doing that. And even in Northeast Syria, when they were building the government that is, is, is in supporting these improved religious freedom conditions. They also were building civil society at the same time because they had understood that you couldn't have the kind of society they wanted to have without strong civil society. So I'm glad to be on the civil society side and really helping to in, in, encourage that to, to work better together yeah. and, and to be able to make a real difference on the ground with religious freedom conditions. Not much time, but what I can. Um, um, what is to happen to the, this is from Robert Larrick, um, what is to happen to the Sunni, Syrian Sunni refugees in Turkey? Will they ever be able to return or find a friendly safe area that to return to? That is a really good question. Um, you know, and I know one of the things that is probably not the best place for them is to bring them into the places um, that um, Turkey's already invaded, you know, like Ifrin, Sarkhani, um, Talabiyad, in, in, which is what, Erdogan is hoping to do at least, uh, I understand about a million of them, they're hoping to move soon, but the conditions are so bad in those areas for everybody. I mean, mostly for religious minorities, but for everybody that what we've seen is, um, is th that there are actually protests of, of the Arab communities that are there, that are there um, because the conditions are so bad. So this isn't, um, you know, just to continue the ethnic cleansing that, that Erdogan started in these areas isn't really the answer for these already vulnerable communities. So many of them are in Turkey. They don't want to go back to Syria. You know, it cannot be forced population transfers. That's obviously a war crime. So, you know, they, they need to have the choice to be able to leave. But I do feel for them. I, I, I know a lot of Syrian refugees in different parts of the world and in Lebanon, other places, and they've really had a difficult um, journey. And I, I definitely think we should continue to support them. Uh, this is from Carrie Hillenbrand. Um, did the restoration of diplomatic relations between Turkey and Israel come at the price of abandonment of Syrian Kurds, in your view? You know, I'm not sure they're related, um, other than I think, you know, clearly, you know, Erdogan has been wanting <laughs> to abandon them for a while. So I, I really would not tie that um, together with the the um, Israel, the deal with Israel. Mm -hmm. um, Considering the dire, uh, what do you think, I'll rephrase this a little bit. Another one asked about the dire straits of uh, remaining Christian communities in the Arab world. Yeah. Um, do you think that, um, do you think there is too little concern about this in the Western yeah. world? And what do you think <laughs> society domestically could do to improve their plight? Yeah, that has been one of the things that's been the heaviest on my heart is, you know, the oldest Christian communities in the world um, and, and how they can't, why they're struggling so much to move forward, how little support they're getting and how much 
they've been forgotten. And so, you know, I, I work with one of the organizations called the Shai Fund that has helped um, about 70 family businesses get started in the Nineveh Plains and in Northeast Syria, uh, Christians and Yazidis by um, granting them five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars for business plans, things like paint shops, stationery stores, grocery stores, whatever. You know, I think those are the kind of things you can do to help communities be able to stay and take care of their families. Um, you know, I, I, I think those are the kind of things that we could look at more than just humanitarian support, but actually helping people to become independent and how can we better support these communities. So I'm actually going to Europe to do some meetings with the leadership from some of these communities to try to hear from them because how how do you think we can better help you? Because I have these ideas and I've seen things that look promising, you know, and obviously supporting governments like the Thomas administration, you know, where where they have they can they can live in freedom. But obviously it's 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 a difficult place for anyone economically at this point in time with all they're going through with Turkey. And we know that the economic piece of, of being able to stay in these places is an important part of it. So I'm continuing to try to learn and understand from the community themselves how we can better support them. But it's definitely something I think we need to continue to look at and we should we should prioritize higher than it is. Okay, um, this is from, uh, well, I can't read the name, it's a email. Uh, realistically, how much progress, this is kind of a big question. Realistically, okay. how much progress is being made in reduce, reducing persecution in the Middle East? You know, how much do these, you know, many of them are dictatorships or minimum yeah. authoritarian states really care? You know, how much progress do we make, I guess? Well, I'll tell you what, in the 27 countries that Turkey covered, or Turkey, that USERF covered last year, only four countries had progress at all out of 27. And so that was, you know, um, Egypt, Iraq. So these were tiny improvements, Kazakhstan and, and Eritrea. And these are just, like I said, tiny improvements. And, you know, so, but but also, we're also seeing this rise in, in you know, the social media is being used where people are are um, more sectarian divisions and, and other ways of nationalism that have, have been dangerous around the world. So there's a lot of threats to religious freedom and and um, and a lot of work being done to counter those threats. But it is definitely a, um, a difficult situation. I think that the US has a lot of power these to, has a lot of levers they can push to to incentivize um, religious freedom conditions. And there's good reason. And we're seeing this in Central Asia with some of the countries there that are getting more economic um, investments that actually coming out of, of a period of, of, of religious freedom violations into offering more freedom has actually um, made their countries more prosperous and opened them up to the world. And those are the kind of things that can happen when these countries decide to go down a different road when it comes to the religious freedom conditions and also allow civil have that space for civil society to exist, even in authoritarian countries where they can work together and improve their own conditions. And so um, there's, there's, there's a lot of low fruit in the Middle East. A lot of countries could do a small things that could actually improve things quite a bit and would please a lot of other countries that might be willing to support them more if they do those things. So those are the kind of things we're working on. And it just, and the, the, the movement continues to grow of people that are concerned about religious freedom. Um, but there's a lot of work to, to be done as you can see by really the difficult conditions. All right. Well, look, we could talk all day. We are already <laughs> past our time. Um, I really appreciate it. It was a big topic and we covered a wide swath, but uh, I really appreciated your depth of knowledge and expertise and, uh, and maybe we'll have you back someday. Thank you very much. I look much. forward to it. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you it. Can join us next week for other webinars on different topics. And thank you very much for joining us. Bye. Bye-bye.